Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So it's great being here at the NYU Law Forum. So this is like the end of a little mini tour that Mary and I have done. Um, Not so many when you think about how many miles we've traveled. Out to true. Texas. That's true. I couldn't think 92nd Street Y. We yeah. went all the way to the Upper <laughs> East Side, which does feel like another world. Um, so yeah, we went to the Texas Tribune f- Festival, um, and then we went to 92nd Street Y, but also we were at Georgetown, where Mary teaches. My home turf. So anyway, so it's really great to be here at the NYU Law Forum. I think all of you probably know me, but Mary, who has come here for various panels and also has graciously come and taught, uh, like I keep on but putting Security. the bite on you. Yes, right. exactly. Yes, yes. Yep. So Mary has this glittering career. Former DOJ was a prosecutor for many years doing sex trafficking cases, a whole variety of everything you do in D.C. in the U.S. <laughs> Attorney's Office, which is an unusual office because it's federal and state. Um, and then did a lot of national security work. And I think that's how we really first interacted. Yes, um, as I think I was headed. Well, actually, when I was criminal division chief and we had some pretty significant national security cases like yeah. the attack on the emission in Benghazi, Libya, pretty significant national security case. So, yeah, yes. and you were just a little, a little, the FBI, a little case. Right, yeah. as the general counsel. Yep. And now Mary does really great work at ICAP, <clears throat> um, bringing cases such as suing domestic terrorist gangs. That's my term and yep. not necessarily yours. Unlawful um, private militias, that's what I call them. <laughs> right. So Proud Boys, Oath Keepers in a civil context and has been doing really incredible work. But we wanted to really switch to something that we started talking about actually yesterday on uh, a podcast because we're here at NYU and like less than a mile from here, we have a civil fraud case going on with respect to the former president and two of his children and some of his companies and the former chief financial officer in connection with a variety of financial fraud causes of action. The brief overview is that you have seven causes of action. The state court judge on the first cause of action granted summary judgment for Letitia James, the attorney general, and that is a so-called Martin Act violation. It's routinely brought in New York. And the trial is not really with respect to the liability on that first cause. It is with respect to liability on the six other causes of action that all sound in fraud in various ways. And then there is a sort of damages component in terms of what essentially what's the remedy, both on the first cause of action as to which liability is found and if liability is found on the other six, what the remedy would be. 
And as we discussed yesterday, and I don't want to be too repetitive of our, of our podcast yesterday, which you should tune into, it's not really damages here, right? It's yeah. called disgorgement, because importantly, this is a case about equity. So it's not about did any of the banks or insurance companies lose money? It's did Trump and his companies benefit financially? And so the remedy is what do they disgorge equivalent to how they benefited, not about what was the injury to the banks, if that makes sense to you. And I think he, in particular, and his attorneys try to confuse that and suggest that because the banks didn't lose money on him, at least according to him, there shouldn't be any payments at right. all. That's yeah. sort of that no harm, no foul. No harm, no foul. In other no words, yeah. um, the, that the banks were ultimately repaid. Anybody who's done sort of financial fraud cases on the criminal side, you know, you don't get to basically trick a bank into making loans or giving you a better rate in terms of the, both the volume of the loan and then the amount you pay and then say, but don't worry, I paid it all back. Um, right. You know, that wasn't your decision to make. One of the, the witnesses, I think the only witness so far who's been on is somebody who was an external accountant for the Trump organizations. And I worked on the Enron case, and it just reminds me so much of what various Enron defendants said with respect to outside auditors, which was not, a, a, there's a legitimate argument, which is we needed outside accounting help. We didn't know what the rules were. We presented all of the facts to the accountants. They told us how to structure what we were doing, and we followed all of that. That would be a legitimate use of reliance on accountants. The same way you'd have reliance on lawyers if you tell them what all the facts are. If you tell are. them all the facts, exactly. let's be clear, because we're going to be talking yeah. about attorney-client sort of uh, advice of counsel as we get into some of these criminal cases, because for right. sure we expect that to come yeah. up. So that's the legitimate <laughs> use, but that's not what seems to be being presented. Uh, it's not what they're testifying to. Yes, or exactly. What he, David Bender's testifying to. Yeah, so David Bender is the outside accountant. And what you don't get to argue if you are a defendant accused of either civil or criminal fraud is that my outside accountant didn't stop me um, <laughs> and didn't, didn't catch the fraud. Um, and so, and, and that's basically what's going on. When I gave fictitious and false and fantasy information to my outside accountant. Yes. Yeah. So that that was a large part of some of the cross yesterday. It's, it is true that they didn't make the outside accountant seem like the best accountant in the world. That also reminded me of Enron. Part of what Enron was looking for so we're up was... We're two anecdotes now. We're, we're, I'm yeah. counting. Oh, yeah. This is like a constant <laughs> thing. It's like I always tell anecdotes and Mary's like... <laughs> Where's the substance? Although this anecdote no, no, is these related. Are, they're substantive. Yes, exactly. They're often substantive. They're yes, just, you know. And sometimes they're not at all. Yeah, sometimes. Um, so, um, but now you've interrupted Sorry. my anecdote. Yeah. Um, Enron had to do with Enron. Yes. Yeah. So, um, a lot of times Enron would be saying, you know, I relied on on accountants, but you just can't say a they didn't catch it, and b they weren't very good. And that is a lot of what Enron was looking for. They didn't want a particularly diligent outside group looking at what they were doing. The more that they could get people who were going to not be terribly exacting or not be very thorough, that was good for them. Yeah. And so I suspect we're going to be hearing that argument from well, Letitia and, James. And folks may recall, um, because right before we go on to get the gag order, which I know we want to talk about b before we bring our guest up, 
folks may record that this this accounting firm, you know, after a lot of litigation over whether it its records could be subpoenaed by the attorney general and, and before that by the district attorney, basically disavowed later the accounting and saying, we don't stand by the materials, which we now know is because they felt like basically garbage in, garbage out, right? If you're getting bad information in, your accounting is based on that. And so they basically disavowed it, which is pretty significant. Huge. Yes. It's huge. Yeah. So, um, so obviously you all probably heard in the last 24 hours, the judge in the New York civil case issued a gag order, a limited one, because it was very focused on the statements that Donald Trump made with respect to the judge's law clerk. And the gag order was essentially do not speak, do not write, do not pass go, like don't do anything with respect to court staff. And this is my hyperbole, which is, you know what, you can run for office without attacking the judicial staff. This has nothing to do with free speech. This is about rhetoric that incites violence. Um, since we're in a law school, this is not really a First Amendment issue. This deals with when you are a defendant out on bail or you're in a court proceeding here, obviously in the civil case, it's a defendant in a civil case brought by the attorney general, there are restrictions on what you can and cannot say. Some people would say none of this is really First Amendment protected to begin with because certain types of speech is just not First Amendment activity. But certainly in the criminal context, there are all sorts of restrictions placed on your liberties when you are out on bail or when you're not out on bail. In other words, you can be put in jail. You can be told that you can't have a gun. You can be told that you have to report in certain places. You can be under house arrest. There are all sorts of things that happen to you merely because you are charged based on probable cause with a felony or sometimes even a misdemeanor found by a grand jury. And so the court has jurisdiction over you. And one thing what Mary and I were looking at is to see in the last 12 hours what has Donald Trump been doing? And it's been kind of interesting because he, so far, appears to, it has definitely been a sort of a brushback and that the things that he is talking about or posting about definitely do not run afoul of what the judge said. Yeah, which was very explicit. Don't attack court staff or even speak about court staff. Yeah. But we were talking earlier, he's almost like a toddler now going right up to that line, right? His post this morning again attacked the civil case, again attacked the attorney general, Letitia James, again attacked the court proceedings as being part of political persecution. These are all things we know agitate his base, sometimes spur people in the public to take action, violent actions. And that's one of the things we talked about last week in our episode on political violence. We talked about a little bit yesterday, but he's at least smart enough to know I'm not going to blatantly violate the judge's order. I'm going to do all these other things. And so this is, I think, is the creep that we're seeing, right? Right now, there is pending a motion in the no, federal... No, no pun intended. Right. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, the district court case, the federal district court case in D.C., criminal case involving January 6th, there is a pending motion, as I'm sure you all know, to get a order, limited order restricting his speech to keep him from denigrating not just court staff, but 
the judge, prosecutors, FBI agents, witnesses that would taint the jury pool and just affect the administration of justice. And so, as we've said before, the chutzpah to be continuing to kind of make the statements that he's been making while he's got that motion pending, now that he's under a gag order here. I think these are things that are also going to be considered by other judges in other cases. And, you know, some of our, I think, greatest concern is that we all know that when Mr. Trump says things that are inflammatory, there are people out there who take actions. So we know these have these impacts. And I think that's what Judge Angoran knows too. And he thought, no way, no how, you're not doing this on my watch. He has to protect his staff. Yeah. So my reaction was, I mean, I know that that the former president is doing this to sort of goad judges and to play the victim and is really sort of daring them to to do this. But it really shouldn't take, in my view, an attack on the judge's staff. I mean, that's outrageous. But um, it, it, they're all, they all should be viewed that way. Um, whether it's an attack on Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, uh, whether it's an attack on witnesses, comments about uh, uh, Mark, Mark Milley, Milley um, denigrating what happened to Paul Pelosi. Uh, it, it's all um, of a kind, and I totally understand why the judge would be protective and extremely upset about the attack on his law clerk. He had every right to be, and, and I think it, it was totally appropriate to issue that order. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. All of you know our guests, and we rarely have guests, and we try and find people who are really experts in particular areas to help educate us on some of the many, many novel issues that arise when there are criminal cases for the first time in history against former president of the United States. We want to spend a lot of time talking about the removal issues in Georgia that raise statutory issues about removal and also presidential immunity issues and defenses that arise in connection with those. So all of you are very aware of our next guest, um, who is Trevor Morrison. But for everyone who should know of him, let me give you a brief bio. So obviously he teaches here at NYU in constitutional law and also served for 
a remarkable nine years as dean of the law school until last year. Before that, he was at Columbia, and before that at Cornell. He has this incredible glittering resume, in addition to that, of having worked in the Office of Legal Counsel, the Solicitor General's Office, the White House Counsel, and clerked for the remarkable Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So we're incredibly lucky, as you all know, to have Trevor here to talk to us about removals and presidential immunity and make us smarter. So welcome. Thank so you. Just we always like do level sets. And since you've spent time in Washington, we, we use a lot of these sort of Washington lingos. Sure. So just to make sure everyone is up to speed, there are various removal petitions that were made in Georgia, first by Mark Meadows, then by the former chief of staff, Jeffrey Clark, former assistant attorney general for the civil division, and for a brief moment, the acting attorney general. <laughs> for less than a day on January 3rd, I believe. January 3rd. And then there are three people who are so-called fake electors. All of them filed petitions to remove their state criminal case in Georgia to have it go to federal court. The district judge, the federal district judge, denied all of them in written opinions and after hearings after, after hearings hearings exactly some with more evidence than others True. as mark <laughs> meadows famously testified jeffrey clark did not he said, tried to submit an affidavit and did submit affidavits also from edwin, edwin meese former attorney general in the pleistocene years yeah. and those are now working their way through up to the 11th Circuit. I think the Meadows briefing is actually all yes. done. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think we know who the panel will be. We don't know if they will actually have an oral argument. And I don't think they've set a date yet. But, you know, it's not as though necessarily a decision in the Meadows case will govern the others because each one had their own arguments for why they were federal officers, why what they did with is, was within the scope of their official duties under color of their office, as the terminology is used, and why they have federal defenses. And some of those federal defenses, I think, are what we really want to talk to Trevor about. And that's why the judge in each case issued an opinion. Right. And uh, with respect to Mark Meadows and Jeffrey Clark, he said, yes, you are federal officers, or you were at the time, but I don't find that what you were doing was under the color of your office. And so I'm remanding your cases back to state court. With respect to the three fraudulent electors, these were the Republican-nominated presidential electors in Georgia, who normally would, own, well, not normally, under law, would only meet to vote on the date the Electoral College meets to vote if their candidate won their state. And of course, their candidate did not win their state, but nevertheless, they went and met on the day that the Electoral College meets to vote. They voted and then they certified that their electoral ballots were true and correct and sent them up to Capitol Hill to be counted. Those three, the judge made a different decision. The judge said, you're not even federal officers. Being a Republican nominated or Democrat nominated, it wouldn't matter, presidential elector does not make you a federal officer, nor were you acting under sort of like the direction of a federal officer. So he kind of kicked those cases out at step one without even getting right. to step two. So Trevor, I have a question, which is why is there even a removal statute? Like what was what was the purpose of it? Why should somebody who's charged 
in criminally in state court where, you know, I, I think Mary and I were both raised in the idea of like, you know, the state wants to bring a criminal case, like they can do what they're going to do. And yeah. they have to comply with certain constitutional limits. But the idea of removing it seems like, okay, why would we do that under a federalist system? Right. Yeah. So it's super, hey, hey hello. It's nice to see all of you. Um, <laughs> um, ever since they hung my Porsche on the wall, I don't come into this room anymore. So, um, <laughs> it, it's a super unusual circumstance, but it's not new. Just to underscore the unusualness of this, if any of these removals sticks, you'll have the Fulton County District Attorney trying state criminal charges in a federal courtroom in front of a federal judge, in front of a jury drawn from the federal jurisdiction that draws, and that's actually one of the tactical reasons that one might prefer that because there's quite a difference between the relevant federal district and Fulton County, Georgia, in terms of its population and what the jury might be. So very strange, but not new. The first federal officer removal statute was passed in 1815. This is a point when the subject matter jurisdiction of the lower federal courts was really quite limited, but they had jurisdiction to hear criminal cases in certain instances. And the idea there was there was fear. This was sort of in the aftermath of the War of 1812. There was fear in particular that New Englanders who were hostile to the trade embargo with England would not take kindly to federal officers who had been charged with enforcing the trade embargo in that part of the country and might try and use the weaponry of local state officials to punish them in different ways, maybe charge them criminally. And so the idea was to get a fair forum, something for the law students here, a little bit like what we think about when we think about diversity jurisdiction and the ability for an out-of-state defendant to move a case from state court to federal court relying on diversity jurisdiction. Here, the idea is not that this case could have been brought in federal court in the first place. These are state criminal charges, right. and they can't be brought in federal court in the first place. The statute says the officer can remove if, as Mary was just saying, they show that they were a federal officer at the time, that they're being prosecuted. It also covers civil suits, actually, but here they're being prosecuted for acts taken under color of their office. And then a third requirement, which is not in the letter of the statute, but the Supreme Court has construed as being implicit in the statute, and that's that they raise a, an at least colorable federal defense. So it wouldn't be enough that you say, I'm being charged as an officer of the United States. The acts in question were taken by me under color of my office. But here's the thing. I just didn't do what I've been charged with doing. I'm just factually innocent. You don't get to remove that case. You have to add at least one colorable federal defense to remove. And so that's what's going on here. And it's been a, it, it's been a possibility, as I say, there, there hasn't always been a removal statute. There were periods of time when it sort of lapsed and then another one was passed. But this general federal officer removal statute has been around for many, many decades. Well, it's so interesting because the protection of the federal removal statute seems so slight because you still have the criminal charges. Mm -hmm. You still have it under state law. You still have the same prosecutors. And so leaving aside the the jury issue which is it you know, may or may not be different depending on where it is and it's you, not obvious that it would have been right. different in 1815 exactly the original yes. idea so what you're really getting is a different judge. It's a judge but if the judge is following the law and they're supposed to adhere to this state law in the case even though they're sitting as a federal judge it just seems like a pretty s slim read in terms of the protection that they were worried about 
I agree with that, although the difference between federal judges and state judges on an issue like, you know, the blockade in the 1810s really might have been quite a significant right. issue. It's interesting to me that from the very beginning of the union, the Judiciary Act of 1789, there was a concern for the bias of state court systems against out-of-staters in particular. I don't know that any of that holds today. I don't know right. if Donald Trump, for example, has any reason to have greater faith in a federal judge to whom he might try and remove his case if he tries to remove his versus state. Today, I think it's about delay, jury pool difference, and just available tactics to sort of forestall things. Although it's worth noting here, given your mention of Donald Trump, that he, his he attorneys, has not yeah, yeah, he has not, and his attorneys actually filed a paper saying he is not going to move for removal of the Georgia case. But I think that does kind of get us to like, what are the defenses raised? And those who did try yeah, to seek sure. removal yeah. offered as defenses because that defense is similar to what we expect Donald Trump will raise substantively in, in motions to dismiss yeah. in both state court and in federal court in, in DC. DC. Yeah, yeah, correct. So let me take that in two parts. The Meadows decision sort of refusing the removal, Judge Jones' opinion, federal judge, and effectively remanding the case to state court. And then his uh, more recent opinion reaching the same result, but separately reasoned, as you say, in Jeffrey Clark's case, rely on the second of these three criteria that we've talked about. Federal officer, acts taken under color of office, and then colorable defense. He doesn't reach colorable defense. He doesn't reach whether there's a colorable defense based in federal law. That we should talk about that because that's going to be where Trump's defenses are, both in state court in Georgia and in federal court in D.C. And there's every reason to expect, as you've said, that his defense will have a very similar shape to the kind of defense that both Meadows and Clark have raised. The judge I think we're, you know, very thoughtful and careful opinions in both. Um, and I will say, I'm, I'm worried that he's wrong. I'm worried that he's wrong in concluding that the acts in question weren't taken under color of their office. And it's a complicated and pretty long analysis, but I'll just give one part of it. There's a part of the judge's analysis that focuses on a federal statute called the Hatch Act, um, which is not a part of these cases. These are state charges, obviously. But the Hatch Act, in summary, basically prohibits federal officers from engaging in sort of electioneering activity, political campaign activity. And so let's think about the phone call to Brad Raffensperger, right? The reasoning, as I understand it from Judge Jones, is something like, okay, that was not official, that was, that was electioneering. That was, that was Trump as candidate calling Raffensperger and people helping his campaign in the call. Therefore, Meadows, when he participated in that call, wasn't acting within his authority as chief of staff because he doesn't have the authority as chief of staff to do that kind of thing. Therefore, this set of acts was not undertaken under color of his office as chief of staff. So I think the judge got everything but the last thing right. Um, if what under color of office means is, did you have the lawful authority to do that thing? then the under color of office analysis becomes the same as do you have a colorable federal defense for it? Or in at least a lot of cases it does. And that's really not the point of this language of under color of office or similar language that some of our students might know about under color of law. 
42 U.S.C. 1983, the most important civil rights cause of action that enables private plaintiffs to, to sue to enforce their federal constitutional rights, requires there that the person being sued act, have acted under color of law. This is an old term. It's actually centuries old in different formulations, under color of law, under color of office. Although Judge Jones thought they're some different. significant difference. You would disagree? I'm not, not for these purposes. It's, there's a really terrific article written by uh, Professor... I wrote it down, Stephen Winter in the early 90s, who traces the history of this. It's an important opinion by Frankfurter in dissent about this. But it's clear that under color of office was meant to refer to things done without legal authorization, but using the trappings of your office. When Donald Trump calls and basically threatens to sick the DOJ on Brad Raffensperger, if that threat is credible, it's because he's bringing the trappings of his office with him. And, and I, I think the same for would be true too. with Jeffrey Clark. One of the key things Correct. there was that he tried to get the acting attorney general and the acting deputy attorney general to sign off on a letter that would be sent on DOJ exactly letterhead. Right. Right. The whole point was it was going to be the, the force of it was that it was under color of office, that it was part of the DOJ. And of course, the, the acting attorney general and the deputy attorney general said, no way, no how, right. because it's a false statement. Right. But in terms of looking at that, is, is it under color? I mean, to me, that's the key there. Yeah. There's no question it's not that they're accused in both situations of doing something that's unlawful. Correct. But the question is whether it's under color of office or is it something so outside of what they're doing, what their role is, so the personal act. They're they effectively went. acting as a private right. citizen. Exactly. And I think the way I looked at it, because I used to do a lot of corporate yeah. criminal prosecutions, and the way that corporations are liable is that you impute under respondeat superior the actions of an employee that is taken within essentially the color of law, which mm -hmm. is in the color of their responsibility and employee's responsibility at the company. Years and years ago, when respondeat superior was being challenged by corporations, they said, well, of course we're not responsible because these employees committed crimes. And that's not under what their employee role because they're not allowed to commit crimes as part of, you know, employee of ExxonMobil or, right. you know, whatever, pick your company. And the court said, no, 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 no. That's not the analysis. It's whether they were doing this as part of their employment using the trappings of their employment, as opposed to did they just when they went home, did they shoot somebody right. completely outside of their role? And so you impute their knowledge. And so when I looked at this, I thought, well, th this has sort of been worked through, at least with respect to different bodies of law. Yeah. In 1983, it's been worked through in a big way. I exactly. was just going to say, for students, a lot of you may be a lot interested in, you know, police excessive force cases, Correct. right? So these issues exactly. come up all the time. It's the police doing it in their uniform, like while they're out on patrol, does that make it under color of law? Maybe so. Does that mean they're going to be Im immune? Maybe not. And right. we could spend a whole entire episode on qualified immunity. But I think that does get us to prong three. So I right. wonder yes. if you would say that Judge Jones, a lot of what he said about the second criteria, Applies right, under really should have shifted over to the third, which is, do you have a defense that you are immune from prosecution for this because it really was within your official duties? Exactly right. So I think that when I read his opinion, like a very high fraction of the undercolor of office analysis applies really to the third. And 
I think that means that the 11th Circuit could well affirm the remand, but just on the alternative ground, on a different ground than the one he relied upon, which is that the, the acts that Meadows and Clark are accused of are not acts for which they have a colorable federal defense. So what would be the colorable federal defense? And here it may be easiest to start with Trump and then to work back right. yep. to Meadows and Clark. Maybe even before that, I'll say in a, in a kind of ordinary federal officer removal case, what's the colorable federal defense you would typically see? I first got to know all of this stuff in the course of writing a, a law review article with with my former boss, Seth Waxman, relating to a case called Horiuchi from the 1990s. And this is a case arising out of a sort of standoff between federal law enforcement and some separatists in Ruby Ridge, Idaho. And there was a shooting and an FBI sniper accidentally shot and killed an unarmed person on this compound. There were lots of armed and dangerous separatists. This person was unarmed. He was charged with a state felony by the local DA, removed the case to federal court, and then there was a long litigation. Ultimately, the charges were dismissed. But his federal defense, his colorable federal defense, was that he had authority to use deadly force in certain circumstances from a combination of the federal statutes that create federal law enforcement agencies, the regulations, and then even the sort of uh, rules of engagement that he was operating under. So we don't have any of that here. And that kind of immunity usually travels under the rubric, which people will be hearing about some, of supremacy clause immunity. Supremacy clause of the Constitution makes the federal constitution and laws supreme. Anything to the contrary in any state constitutional laws notwithstanding. So supreme federal law trumps state law, no pun intended. <laughs> I've and, tried to excise that verb from my vocabulary, but sometimes so, you just have to So Horiuchi says this set of federal laws and implementing regulations, et cetera, preempt state criminal law that would punish me for taking this action. Here, if Trump in D.C. is liable to say, I was acting as president, I was acting within my authority as president, he can't point to some statute giving him a role in the administration of elections, which is really a state thing, even when it's for federal office. He can't point to any provision of the Constitution specifically giving him a role in that, nor can he point to any statute giving him a role in that. Nor can he point to anything in the Constitution that gives the president absolute immunity at any rate, right? Correct. So here's where we're going to pivot yeah. from supremacy clause immunity to an immunity that's been worked out by the Supreme Court in a case called Nixon versus Fitzgerald. And this is where former President Nixon was sued civilly years after leaving office for things he's alleged to have done while in office. And the Supreme Court said presidents and former presidents are absolutely immune from civil liability for actions taken within the scope of their official duties. The outer perimeter, right? Even the outer perimeter the outer of perimeter. their official duties. So he's going to say, well, the same must be true for criminal liability. And when I was calling Brad Raffensperger, I was acting somewhere within the outer perimeter of my official authority as president. And then Meadows is going to say, and my job was to serve the president. And so I, I have the immunity that he has there because I was helping him do his job. And Clark is roughly going to say the same. So that's nonsense. This, Let's get right this to conduct the, was not the end. colorably, arguably within the outer boundaries of the president's official duties. He has no official duties with respect to 
trying to win the election by threatening state election officials to come up with the right number of votes and only the right number of votes for hit for the outcome of his election to change. He will say that there is a kind of general federal interest in the in election integrity across the country. He will say that parts of the Justice Department can bring federal actions if they determine there was some kind of certain kinds of illegality in the administration of elections, even at the state level. That's true. It's just that there's no plausible connection between those federal interests and the things he is alleged to have done. Same for Clark, I think. Although Clark is going to say, well, I had a particular view of the law, and that's what I wanted to express in this letter. But I think it's just tendentious. I think at the end of the day, it's not a colorable federal defense. So to me, I mean, the, the language of in the, the second versus third is like the judge is sort of right, but for this got there the wrong way. Yeah, because I mean, he had I much agree. stronger yeah. language in ground three than for ground two. Or, and whether we in the Mueller report were dealing with the same issue because we had to deal with there was going to be some sort of claim of immunity. And we actually, as opposed to just looking at it in terms of, is there anything in the Constitution that would have permitted this? Our point was Michael Dreeben and his team, and, and actually in the current Solicitor General of the United States was on our team, mm -hmm. was that it actually is a violation of your oath of office under the Constitution to be doing this. So far from being authorized, it's actually a violation. That's so, and, I mean, and, and, I think that, I think it's going to be a very hard argument to make. And just to remind people, obviously there was no prosecution of Donald Trump brought as a result of the Mueller investigation, but that was in really because the Department of Justice has taken the position for decades that you cannot indict a sitting president. And the by, Mueller report- By policy. By policy. This is not <laughs> something a court has ever decided. And I think there are plenty of arguments that that's not constitutionally required or anything else. Nevertheless, Robert Mueller was a special counsel appointed under the regulations of the Department of Justice, sub subject to all of the regulations and guidance of the Department of Justice. And he said, you can't indict a sitting president. Now, I will just say before we move on, he did then go on to write many, many, many pages about all of the evidence that would arguably support every element of a number of different various crimes. Uh, so there you have That's it. That's true. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. um, Underappreciated. Yes. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. Thank you. 
So we're going to turn to the questions. So if we have various questions, I think we have three. So one for each of us uh, that we're going to turn to. Um, so Trevor, this is a question for you. And it deals with something that Judge Ludig has talked about, Lawrence Tribe has talked about. It's It's gotten a fair amount of play. But since we have you here, <laughs> we can get your views on it, which is this issue of does Section 3 of the 14th Amendment apply to enable the requisite state official to bar President Trump from the ballot for the presidency? So, as you know, this is sort of wending its way through various, various courts, courts. Um, and various people have weighed in and uh, one way or the other. Trevor, what's your view? Well, um, I'm going to read. I know you all have your own. Cups I love, it. I love this. Uh, There's one in my just backpack. Let me, so you can read along in your copy, but I'll, uh, for, for the and, folks. And just so everyone knows, since, it's, since this is a podcast, yeah. is that Trevor has pulled out um, his pocket handy sized. dandy pocket sized constitution. <laughs> um, this is what you get when you have the former dean of NYU <laughs> Law School here. Don't love leave it. home without it. Um, so, so here's what Section 3 says. Um, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. No person shall be a senator or representative of Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state. So you can't hold any of those offices if, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution, you have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But it then says Congress can excuse this with a, with a two-thirds vote of each house. So there are at least three questions that, that are raised here, I think. Um, the first general one is, is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment what we would call self-executing? Does it require an act of Congress in order to implement this? Or is it directly enforceable in litigation, either in state court or federal court? There's no like totally clear answer from the Supreme Court to that question. There is a case called Henry Griffin, I think, that suggests that implementing legislation might be needed. But I think um, you mentioned some of the people who've weighed in on this publicly. Actually, the sort of longest piece of writing on this was a law review article posted over the summer by two quite well-known, very smart, very conservative law professors named Will Bode and Michael Stokes Paulson. And they argued to me quite persuasively that the section does not require implementing legislation and that it is directly enforceable by the courts. But one could take different positions on that. But I, I, that strikes me as the right answer. And even just briefly, you know, even if it doesn't require it, there still is that question about what would be the process that is due, right? Correct. So if it's if there's going to be a judicial proceeding, is this a criminal trial? Is it a civil trial? What is it? Those are hard answers that are going to be worked out in the litigation that's going to be brought which will be over, you know, let's say, trying to enjoin um, state officials from even listing candidate Trump on the ballot because of, a, of an allegation of ineligibility. That's one. Second is, does it apply to someone who served as president who is seeking the presidency? Now, you might think, well, it must apply to someone who previously served as president and seeking the presidency. If there's anyone you would want to render ineligible because they've, you know, engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution of the United States, I mean, isn't literally the first person you would list? Start uh, at the top. Yeah. Right. 
But there is, a a bit of a, there is a bit of a problem there, which is president is not explicitly enumerated here. If it's covered, it would be on the idea that the president is an officer of the United States. And that one turns out to be trickier than you might think. Here, I disagree with folks like Professor Tribe, who's a friend whom I admire greatly. It is not as bonkers as it might seem to suggest that the president is not an officer of the United States. For at least some purposes, it's quite clear he is not. Article 1 and Article 2 together refer to the process by which officers of the United States are appointed. The president nominates them, and they are, if they're uh, not inferior officers, but superior officers, they're subject to senatorial confirmation. Well, that's not how you get a president of the United States. Presidents and vice presidents are elected. And in part for that reason, there's a long line of OLC precedents, Office of Legal Counsel Opinions, saying that at least for purposes of those clauses, Antonin Scalia in the early 70s wrote an opinion saying the president and the vice president are not officers of the United States. But don't worry, because we have a federal officer removal statute. Is the president an officer of the United States under that statute? I think we would say yes, which is to say the same word can mean something different in different contexts. And this list is so comprehensive. The idea that like, it was intentional to leave the president out of this list, I think defies common sense. And Bode and Paulson argue there's no real evidence from the framing of this provision that there was any intent to exclude the president, which leaves us with, did the president engage in insurrection or give aid and comfort to those who did? That's the hard factual question about January 6th. That's the question that Jack Smith's charges have avoided so that it won't be part of Trump's trial in Washington. I think you can make a very good argument that the answer is yes. I think the real question is, what will the Supreme Court say about this? The Supreme Court's easiest out would be to say Congress has to pass implementing legislation. And if I had to predict, I would say the court, which is going to answer this question inevitably, is going to basically duck it by saying it needs implementing legislation. But I don't think that's the right answer. Would that be true if somebody who is 34 ran for office? Would they be able to say, well, there's no implementing legislation? I think not. Um, in the case of members of Congress, anyway, there's the um, famous case of Powell versus McCormick involving Adam Clayton Powell. And his objection when he was unseated from Congress is that the House had effectively added a qualification beyond the ones that are enumerated in the Constitution for who can be qualified to serve in the House. The court took that to be justiciable and took the addition of a, of a qualification there to be something that it could say was illegitimate. So I, I don't think the court would say you need implementing legislation in that context. But here, in part for questions of what kind of judicial proceeding are you even supposed to have, I could see the court, again, I don't want to say that that's the right outcome, but I think a kind of political desire of the court not to be the one to say he's ineligible it feels likely to me that that's where a majority of this court would go. I don't think they want to do that. And age right. is also just an objective fact, unless, you know, you were an orphan right. and you lost counting your birth base certificate. 12, maybe. Well, that's true. Like, when does it start? Yeah, okay. Good, fair point. All right. Here's one for you, Andrew. Um, what can be done to address the repeated and ongoing attempt by individuals such as Mr. Trump to characterize their prosecution as political witch hunts, which seems to be a very persuasive to their political supporters. Can or should the Justice Department or media or the executive branch or judges in these cases be doing more? So I'm not, I think we've spent a lot of time today and yesterday talking about the so-called gag order, but I'm going to focus on the part about could DOJ be doing more or state prosecutors 
And my view is, is yes. And I think it's sort of interesting to see what Merrick Garland is doing um, because Merrick Garland has said that, you know, we speak where standard line, which is, you know, we speak through our filings, we speak in court and that's it. Uh, and that that is definitely one model for the Department of Justice. And it leads to this uh, very um, different imbalance because you have the defense speaking and you have the government not speaking outside to sort of mold public perception. Um, but you did notice that one, Merrick Garland has, even at the time that he gave press statements that did go a little bit further than the actual charges, even if it was just to defend the Department of Justice or to talk about who made the decision to uh, bring charges or to do a search. So he did give some gloss. Uh, and then most recently, he was on 60 Minutes talking about sort of the role of the department and a variety of other issues about sort of principles and what the importance of the rule of law is. Um, and so he has been stepping out a little bit of this sort of traditional role. Obviously, I was trained a lot by Robert Mueller at the FBI. And so that's sort of the very, you know, you live by the press, you die by the press. It's like you don't, you just don't do press at all. <laughs> um, and the other model, which I think is one that people should be following more is the Archibald Cox model. You obviously do not want prosecutors to start talking about why a defendant is guilty um, and the specific facts of the case. Like that Boosting is- Boosting the credibility of witnesses, those it, kinds of things. Exactly. That is off limits for all the reasons that like you and I have talked about um, our reaction to James Comey when he talked about his personal views with respect to Hillary Clinton as he was recommending that she not be charged. I mean, that's just so outside of what the Department of Justice and prosecutors should be doing. Um, but it, it's a different matter to talk about the rule of law, to talk about why charges are consistent with how the department has handled other cases that are similar. Uh, and so there is an educational function that can be um, brought to bear. And I think if you look on YouTube, you can still get the Archibald Cox very famous press conference where he explained to the public why he was still seeking the Nixon tapes. Obviously, he could have just filed a brief in the Supreme Court and it would have been very turgid and legalistic and wouldn't have gotten the same play and it wouldn't have been as accessible. And instead, he explained in plain English why this was so important to do and gave an admonition that he wasn't going to talk about sort of the guilt of Nixon or anyone else. And he was limited in what he could say. And one of the things that it did in addition to um, speaking about the substance is it allowed the public to see the person hmm. um, and to get a read on who this person is and to take a measure of the man or woman and why they're doing it. I thought with Merrick Garland, whatever you think about Merrick Garland in terms of his decision-making, if you think he should have been too aggressive or not aggressive enough, um, there was just no question in my view of his credibility and good faith and 
that he was really trying to uphold the rule of law. And so that's just a very useful thing for the public to see. Transparency, really, I think is a good term to put, you know, some transparency is in what is the process the department goes through? What are the principles of federal prosecution that govern these decisions? And, 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 you know, why is it so important to have independence from the White House? All of these are things that not everybody just knows. I mean, those of us who grow up in the Department of Justice, we know these like, you know, it's like the Bible or something, but like it's not common parlance among the public. And, Mm. you know, those are things that if he doesn't get up there and talk about it, um, well, then it's just left to people like you and me, the three of us, to talk about it. (laughs) Which we do, of course. Exactly. It's just with a little bit more weight (laughs) (laughs) when it comes from the sitting attorney general. (laughs) So here's a question, Mary, which it's going to be, this is good because we've saved the the hardest one for you, which is, (laughs) um, would you say the most straightforward prosecution is that of Trump and his election interference call to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, the call that that Trevor was talking about. Um, If not, which of the indictments would take the least amount of time to prosecute and sentence? Yeah, yeah. Um, So as my kids, who are now grown, always ask me, like, what's the best or what's your favorite? I'm like, I don't have favorites. I got, you know, pros and cons to everything. And, And that's really my answer here. Like, So certainly that's a strong charge. And it's not just, you know, the basis for some individual charges in the Georgia indictment. It's also part and parcel of the entire RICO conspiracy. It's also part and parcel of the three conspiracies that are charged in the federal indictment in District of Columbia. Uh, The facts, you know, if you listen to the tape of the call, all 102 minutes, I think it is, which I did listen to, although it's been a long time. I mean, it's pretty stark. It's pretty dramatic. I mean, the Secretary of State says multiple times over and over and over again, we've done audits, we've done recounts. There is no evidence of any significant fraud that would have changed the outcome. Yet the former president persists, persists in saying, I just need you to find 11,000, what is it, 780? 780 780 votes. Mm. How could I forget that number? Um, And basically just one more, right, than the other side, Um, which is interesting, right? Like not find the real legit votes. Find me exactly the amount I need to win, which sort of betrays, you know, his his, uh, feigning that he really thinks there's fraud in the election. He also pointedly suggests that Raffensperger may himself be committing crimes if he does not find these 11,780 votes. That's the abuse of his office. That's the abuse of his office. So I think the facts are very strong on this count. Yet, you know, one of the defenses, of course, is if Mr. Trump honestly and truly, despite all of the evidence to the contrary, honestly and truly believed that he had won the election and that there was fraud, can't he try his best to convince the Secretary of State to go back and take another look? Now, We've talked um, on the podcast and many other people have talked about, you know, there are definitely intent as part of almost every criminal offense, including offenses that have been charged against Mr. Trump. But even if you honestly believe something, that doesn't mean you can go commit crimes to do it. And there's been all kinds of examples like this. You honestly believe that the bank miscalculated the interest on your savings account, all point, you know, zero, two percent or whatever it is. Um, You don't get to go rob the bank because you honestly and truly believe that they miscalculated the interest. So, I mean, that's one of the responses to not just these particular charges related to the Raffensperger count, but to so many other things in the charges. Like you you may have an honest belief that it does not 
uh, entitle you to solicit somebody to violate their oath of office who is telling you, I cannot do that, or to solicit electors to meet and cast their ballots and then send them up to the vice president, even when there are no longer any outstanding legal battles to be decided about the validity of the election in the, in the particular state. So I guess my longish answer is, I think that's really strong, but I think it is part and parcel of, you know, a bigger offense, a bigger conspiracy. And in both the Georgia indictment and the federal indictment about January 6th, it is one piece. And I do think it would be missing something to sort of isolate that piece. Like had Fannie Willis decided we're just going to charge that in a freestanding indictment and we're going to like quickly go to trial. I think particularly where you're talking about an indictment of a former president, um, that might be a shorter trial for sure, but you'd be missing a lot of the big picture, a lot of the story, the context. Jack Smith, of course, indicted only Mr. Trump, wide-ranging conspiracy, but only Mr. Trump and not all the other co-conspirators the way Fonnie Willis did in order, I think, to streamline that trial some, but still tell the whole story. So I, 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 you know, as a somewhat, well, I'm not a betting person, but Andrew and I have talked about this a lot. I I do think- I'm a really bad influence on Mary. I I like, I like, I like speculating. I still (laughs) have too much prosecutor in me to be like, eh. Um, So I, I do think the case that's the most likely to get to trial and, and get finished before the election is the federal January 6th related case. I mean, we have that trial date in on March 4th. And uh, the judge there does have a very rigorous schedule. Now, Mr. Trump has come in and sought to delay that. And, uh, you know, we'll see what the judge does with his request for delay. I don't think he's going to get the delay he wants. And so I think there's a good chance it'll get through trial, but it could also be delayed. And we've talked about this before. If, in fact, Mr. Trump does what we are almost certain he's going to do. His attorney has been promising it now for a month, but still hasn't filed it, which is that he will file an emotion to uh, have the case dismissed on the grounds that he is immune because he was doing things within the outer perimeter of his official acts. Let's assume he loses at the trial court. He will appeal it to the Court of Appeals. Let's assume he loses there. He will go to the Supreme Court. And you may say, well, wait a minute. Um, Wouldn't he have to wait and do the appeal after his trial, but when you're talking about immunity, that means you're immune from even having to go to trial. And so that is something that I think would be immediately appealable and appealable up to the Supreme Court. And then, you know, we'll see whether the Supreme Court would take that, reject that, uh, or what they would do. But more importantly, how long would that take? Because that's the kind of delay that could push off the March date and could get us dangerously close to the election. Assuming they act expeditiously, which there is precedent for in the Trump v. Thompson uh, litigation over House Select Committee's request for presidential records. That moved very fast. I know about that because my organization was co-counsel in that case, and we briefed over every single holiday at the end <laughs> of, of, of 2021. Um, and so for you litigators out there, holidays, forget it. If you're litigating, we had Thanksgiving. <laughs> Something to look Christmas, forward to. New Year's, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, so they know how to move fast when they want to move fast. So we, we will see. It's probably not a coincidence that that uh, motion hasn't been filed yet, right? No, right. Why file it early when you're trying to do it? very last day. Exactly. This is all about the clock. Yeah. It is. Trevor, thank you so much no, for joining for us. Me. Great. And I'll, we'll see the rest of you on campus. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. The senior producer for this show is Alicia Conley. 
Jessica Schrecker and Ivy Green, our segment producers. Our technical director is Bryson Barnes. Bob Mallory, Paul Mouncey, Fernando Arruda, and Harry Culhane are the audio engineers. Jen Maris Perez is the associate producer. Aisha Turner is the executive producer for MSNBC Audio. And Rebecca Cutler is the senior vice president for content strategy at MSNBC. Search for Prosecuting Donald Trump wherever you get your podcasts and follow the series. Finding the music you love shouldn't be hard. That's why Pandora makes it easy to explore all your favorites and discover new artists and genres you'll love. Enjoy a personalized listening experience simply by selecting any song or album and we'll make a station crafted just for you. Best of all, you can listen for free. Download Pandora on the Apple App Store or Google Play and start hearing the soundtrack to your life.